Good morning. Welcome to our Thursday 11th hour. Before we begin, a few announcements. First, as usual, if you have not had a chance to do so, please silence your cell phones. Um, second, at noon, directly after this lecture and in this room, I will be available to answer any questions you might have about the MFA process. My disclaimer is, no one is putting me after this, I just know that some of you are interested in talking about it. So I will answer any questions that you might have to the best of my ability. Um, Jennifer, Jennifer Conville, um, Colville, sorry, I think Michael was here, uh, is running a creative writing workshop, if you all are around, on Sunday, and it is free from 5.30 until 7 p.m. It's at Public Space One, and there are more flyers on the back tables, if you are interested. Um, third, tomorrow at the, or I guess it's fourth, as, um, as the 11th hour, we will have a faculty reading here in this room, room at 11 o'clock. Last week, it was fun and entertaining and clever, and I hope that you will be able to join us. Um, I highly recommend it. And now for today's lecture. Juliet Patterson is here to examine alternative fuel sources powering the non-narrative essay. Her foremost provocation posing the question, when story is not the main concern, what keeps us reading? We read, of course, for a variety of reasons, for truth or beauty, ideas, information, sound, empathy, to escape or be moved. And as creative writers, there is a joy in the innovation, pleasure in abandoning convention, in, as they say, jazzing around. This hour, Juliet will explore elements that might keep your work fresh when story is not the focus, voice, structure, or research, ideas that might convert a present piece that you have or offer a new idea, a unique point of entry. Juliet Patterson's poems and essays have appeared in publications such as 26, American Letters, and um, Commentary, Arts and Letters, Crazy Horse, The Indiana Review, Knockout, and many, many more. She is the author of the poetry collection, The Truant Lover, which won the Night Boat Poetry Prize and Dirge, a chapbook. Her second book of poetry, Threnody, is forthcoming. Her recent prizes included the Arts and Letters, Susan Affett Prize in Nonfiction, the Lydia Hall Memorial Poetry Prize, and fellowships from the Minnesota State Arts Board. She has taught at St. Olaf University University, Hamline University, the Chatham University MFA program, and was recently a recipient of an Excellence in Teaching Fellowship from the Loft Literary Center. She is currently at work on a memoir entitled Sinkhole. Please join me in welcoming her now. Good morning. Happy day five. Thank you all for being here. Um, I don't know why I always get so nervous doing this, but um, all right. If you walked in a little earlier, you heard a Led Zeppelin tune. It's actually an old tune. Um, it has relevance in this essay, but uh, or talk. Before I get started, I wanted to maybe just um, spell out some basic terms, which might be helpful. Uh, so I'm going to write two words on the board. Get ready. There's one word. 
Here's another. A little bit disingenuous to think of these uh, as being on opposite ends of the spectrum. A lot of us obviously dabble in both of these realms, um, but for the purposes of this lecture, I'm going to keep them apart a little bit. But I want you to help me define what these terms are. So what do we think when we think of lyric? Music. Music. Cadence. Cadence. Short. What does that mean? Say more. Okay. I'm going to use this word. Rhythm. We can't see over the. Oh. Oh. Okay. Rhythm, which kind of goes along with music. Anything else? Image. Image. Poem or song. Okay. Sound. Sound. How about narrative? Story. Story. Voice. Discourse. Diction. Any fiction writers in the room? <coughs> Clocks, thank you. <laughs> Art. <laughs> Art. Anything else? Linear. Linear, yes. Time, right? Time is a crucial element in terms of over here. I would say time is a little bit uh, loose, so I'm going to say out of time. If we had to map something that might be lyric, it might look like this, it might look like this, it might look like this. More often than not, a narrative is going to look like this, right? Just so you have a lens on where I'm coming from, I'm primarily a poet. Um, I'm not a narrative poet. I am interested in image um, and moments of imagination or perception. Uh, and for the last five or six years or so, I've been working on a prose project, which has really thrown me for a loop. Um, and I feel like I'm sort of starting over as a writer in terms of craft and ability. So I spend a lot of time when I'm not working on that project begging and asking my very intelligent friends who dabble in prose and who are masters of prose, how does one go about this? Um, how can one structure anything without a story? Uh, and I should say that I actually feel as though um, I was not born into a family of storytellers, and I, I don't really have a very large capacity to tell stories. It's been something I've had to learn. Okay. So I'm mostly kind of talking today about lyric impulses and what that looks like uh, in an essay form or in a memoir form. And just to throw a little more sort of defining terms at you, um, supposedly in 1977, or 1997, the Seneca Review is um, attributed to kind of creating this term lyric essay or lyrical essay. And they defined the literary essay as 
something that combines prose and poetry, something that's constructed from a distillation of ideas, something that mentions but doesn't necessarily expound, suggestive, not exhaustive, relies on associations, imagery, and connotation, makes references to other genres, such as film, music, literature, philosophy, history, so kind of bringing in layers to the work, arranged in fragments as a mosaic, based on stories that are metaphors, based on an intimate voice, and at least in poetry, the lyric tradition is very much grounded in that sort of sensibility, there's an intimacy with the speaker, and crafted with lyrical language. <clears throat> so the beauty of the lyric for me as a writer is that, that, that there's a lot of uh, playfulness with it. There's a manipulation of the world. And for me, it's sort of to play at the most primitive level. Um, I like to use the analogy of vertigo, even though that might not sound, sound pleasant to some of you. <laughs> But it's basically an attempt to momentarily destroy the, distil the stability of perception in both the reader and the writer. So it's that moment of surprise. It's that moment when you're uh, leaping forward in a piece or dropped through a rabbit hole, so to speak. And you might think of the lyric as uh, the reader being immersed in language, obviously, and synthesis. So it's kind of the knowledge of what we are being told is truth, but truth is often masked in an artifice of structure. Okay. One really important thing that I think makes lyric different than narrative is this element of time or temporality. Um, and lyric is kind of, for me, a, a disruption. It's a way to encounter your life. It's, it's neither concerned with the impingement of the past nor with the anticipation of the future. Last night I said it was the middle ground, but some of my brilliant colleagues were quarreling with me about that. But it represents instead of slipping out of the story and into something um, still more fluid, less linear. So on your handout, there's one small example here from Sarah Manguso. This is um, from her most recent memoir called Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. She's a poet herself. I think this is her second uh, memoir. And what you see on this sheet is um, one discrete page of this memoir. So the memoir is built out of machines, to use William Carlos Williams' words, that look like this. So very much like a poem or a prose poem, maybe. And yet it's called a memoir. Um, Manguso kept a diary for 25 years, and then she became pregnant and had a child, and these events uh, kind of gathered an amnesia uh, in her that put her into a different relationship with the need to document herself amid ongoing time. So the central idea behind the book is this investigation of time, and yet she is uh, centering it in the impulse of memoir, at least in her mind she is. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this, and you can kind of get a flavor for it. <clears throat> Sensory memory lasts about 200 to 500 milliseconds after perception, then it starts to degrade. Working memory or short-term memory allows recall for a period of several seconds to a minute. 
Long-term memory can store larger qualities of information for a longer duration, potentially until the end of life. It may be divided into procedural memory, used in learning motor skills and declarative memory used in conscious recall, etc. The whole memoir is not obviously built in this sort of philosophical distant voice, but this is very much a flavor of what goes on in the book. Um, and there's some other uh, writers who are writing nonfiction um, who started in poetry, Maggie Nelson, Claudia Rankin, to name a few, who talk about this idea of the essay or the memoir hybrid form as being one that allows a, a writer to engage with intellect. And they, I saw them on an AWP panel, and they were all talking about how they felt as women writers that they felt very much restricted by that in other forms. In other words, it's not always popular to get intellectual within the body of a poem. Um, but can, and, or in, in a traditional memoir, but if there's like a more lyric impulse behind the work, there seemed to be more permission. So one of the things I want to think about today is just that whole notion of our ideas, our very uh, notion of our intellects, our minds, and how do we infuse that in our work and use it as a layering device. Uh, but first, to go back to my metaphor of vertigo, the lyric essay, in a sense, organizes itself kind of organically and impulsively, and even at times randomly. And I'm going to tell you a story about my friend Joni Tevis. You also have a small excerpt from her, um, one of her essays. She's just pu published a book of essays called <coughs> The World is on Fire, uh, definitely a lyric essayist, so not so much a memoirist, but an essayist. And the sample of the essay you have kind of has a big story. I'm going to tell a little bit of it right now. Um, Joni moved back to South Carolina in 1981. She grew up there, got a teaching job, so she went back to her home ground. Um, it's known as the textile capital of the world. There's mills that manufactured towels and sheets and apparel, and they made uh, florist webbing, fiberglass cloth, material for spacesuits. Um, but by the time she finished her uh, high school years, the, the economy had undergone a radical shift and most of the mills were shuttered. But she went back to South Carolina and the story of the text mills rise and collapse was kind of haunting her. So when she tried to write about it, the, um, the research followed her usual pattern. So she's very much driven by research, kind of as her first impulse. Um, so she did a little illegal exploration of the closed mill sites. And then next she went to the county library's archive and looked up a bunch of cultural histories and <coughs> old manufacturing directories. And she kept trying to draft this essay, but it just was lifeless. Right? This is the risk with lyric impulse, <laughs> is that things can go static or that you lose drama because you've lost that arc, you've lost the plot, you're losing the tension. Um, but one day she was driving around town and heard Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks come on the radio. And that summer it was really rainy in Greenville. Uh, rain totals were higher than Seattle. It was very unusual. So creeks were flooding, bridges were washing out, the mountains were buckling around her. Um, and the strange weather really unnerved people, and um, people started making jokes about Noah's Ark and how we're all going to get on the boat with our animals two by two. 
And then it hit her that the part of the essay might just be something more than uh, just about these mills. And in part, it might be about rebuilding a crisis or a crisis that people outside the region had forgot. So she started revising her essay in, in having in mind drawing out images of water, and I'm going to underscore that word, image, okay? Images of water and rain, and then searching for additional research material to kind of fill in the gaps of what she knew. But the song became the tuning fork. The song became the sort of driving structure. Um, she did a bunch of research. So she stole stuff from the modern brick-making brick magazine, published in 1911. Oral histories, cultural histories, field guides to local trees, interviews with uh, textile workers, her own visits to the mills. She, got, she has lots of material. But when the levee breaks, uh, she put that song on heavy rotation and listened not only to Led Zeppelin, but Memphis Minnie's uh, version uh, Alison Krauss's version. There's a lot of people that have covered this song. She started thinking about the history of the blues, a biography of Memphis Minnie, and then finally material about the great, great flood of 1927. I'm telling you all this, because for me, this kind of embodies the lyric process, the kind of poetic process. This, in essence, is how you chase a poem, or at least I've always chased a poem. I don't know that it's necessarily how you chase a story, although it could be, right? Um, it's maybe not a good way to chase a plot. <laughs> but the great flood of 1927, which this song discusses, pointed her back further to the flood of Genesis. And she started thinking about archetypal stories underlying our shared lives, like um, big themes like creation and destruction and loss. And she found a lot of evidence of those stories in South Carolina. And then started to try and work out uh, those particular things in this essay. So I included just um, a little bit from the first section of the essay. This is on page two of your handout. And I'll read that to you now. Tell me a story you know by heart. All anybody could talk about that summer was the rain. Tomatoes split, pole beans molded, musk melons turned to rot, roadbeds gullied in the jockey lot washed out. Boughs exploded off oak trees, mountainsides slid down slope in a crush of mud. The sign at the Baptist church said, whoever is praying for rain, please stop. And the song I couldn't shake was, when the levee breaks, Memphis Minnie Douglas and her husband Kansas Joe wrote about it the devastating 1927 flood that killed nearly 300 people and wiped out tens of thousands of acres of the Mississippi Delta. Refugees from inundated towns waited in tent cities above another bigger levee while they figured out their next move. Thousands of them left the Delta forever, setting off for cities like Chicago and what became known as the Great Migration. The version of the song that most people know is Led Zeppelin's, and the classical rock stations around here play it plenty. John Bunham's drum line, fleshy, thumping, heavy as a millstone, sounds like dread made physical, and yet it's tempting. It catches your ear, and you sidle over or lean against it. 
Down on the river's edge, weeds grow in the clay. Surely there's no harm in letting your toes play in the water, in the bloodied current thick with silt. Tell me a story you know by heart. For me, that line conveys a lot of intimacy. It's calling up the figures of the storyteller and the listener, and it's trading stories behind a flickering fire. So even this, though this isn't going to be a story, she's still invoking kind of those age-old cues about story. She wanted to ask, and these are some of her words I've stolen from her with her permission. She wanted this line to act as a summons by naming the listener, calling the listener into being. Um, she says, I love direct address. If it's good enough for Walt Whitman, it's good enough for me. And by heart should show you that the story I'm about to tell you is one that's dear to me. I turned it over and over in my hands like a stone, and I worried it like the hem of a skirt. The next paragraph in this small part of the essay, it, it acts, enacts place via particulars. Not green beans, but pole beans. Not cantaloupes, musk melons. So she's inhabiting the diction of this place. Not flea market, jockey lot. These names convey the accent of the place, and like the textile industry, this language is something that that place is in danger of losing. It's unique. So she listened closely and included local speech patterns whenever she could. And as in, whoever is praying for rain, church sign, it's a way to signal both humor and belief. <laughs> Later in the essay, she includes dialogue taken from that research she did, including oral histories, um, interviews with the textile workers, overheard conversations, fragments valuable not only for the break they provide from the narrator's voice, but also for the record of the men and the women who actually did this work. So it's a polyphonic experience, if you will. There's multiple voices in this piece. It's not just one narrator telling you all about Greenville, South Carolina. If musically dynamic can refer to shifts in volume, obviously in this section, uh, the third paragraph is expressed in the shift from the individual to the particular, the song that she couldn't shake the Memphis Mini, the Kansas Joe, to a larger context, the hundreds killed, the thousands displaced. These kinds of connections are very lyric to me. They're associative. Um, it's moving from the small to the very large. Poems often have that kind of gesture. Uh, and I asked her, so why did the song animate the essay? She says, maybe because although the essay contains narratives both large and small, the rise and fall of the textile industry in the southeast and the narrator's visits to abandoned textile mills in her hometown, that narrative was never the essay's reason for being. It was the song. So all of this just to say that <laughs> If you're in a more lyric frame of mind, there can be many, many points of inspiration, including a song you hear on the radio. To me, that seems so liberating um, for those of us who feel confined by having to maybe map out our narrative or our plot. Um, it's helpful to know that you can just stumble upon accidents 
and use them potentially as um, sparks of inspiration. <laughs> so you're not getting the whole essay. I hope you will go to Prairie Lights and check out the book. It's fantastic. This is one of the stronger pieces in the book. Um, but she also does another, um, uses another strategy, which I'd like to talk about for a minute. And that is, uh, she uses a refrain. So we come back to the song consistently, but she has a habit of using a list-making device um, as part of a way to weave the piece together. And I'm not giving you an example from her, but I'm going to give you an example from John Degata. So if you think about what, what a refrain is, in um, a song, it's usually a chorus. It's usually something we come back to and we feel grounded in. And even if you've only heard a song once, you probably have some inkling of a chorus in your memory. Um, it's a way to ground the reader. It's a way to both cause, uh, give shape, but also create tension and familiarity. Um, so like I said, she uses a list-making device. John Degato is another writer who does this quite a lot in his work, and especially in this book, About a Mountain. Anyone read that book, by the way? About a Mountain? Um, he's much more of an essayist than a memoirist, but this book, Out About, About a Mountain, has some very deep personal strains. Uh, the book, just to give you some context, it's obviously about Yucca Mountain, it, which is located north of Las Vegas. Um, the United States government has been uh, burying nuclear waste there. There's some 77 tons of um, apocalyptic yumminess under the ground there. And in the summer of 2002, John Degata helped his mother move to Las Vegas. And just about that time, Congress was proceeding with plans to make the mountain a nuclear dump. Um, also that year, a young man named Levi Presley jumped to his death from the observation desk, a deck of a third-rate Vegas hotel. And these subjects are very disparate, obviously, but they are what animate the narrative, so-called narrative, that Degata explores. Um, he's a very serious thinker, so he's going to be more intellectual than not, kind of as a writer. Um, but he does some really interesting things in his work including uh, using media reports, first-person reportage, uh, statistics, calculations, projections, policy papers, scientific studies, literary references, collages, um, and all of it kind of amounts, it may sound sort of dry, but all of it kind of amounts to a really exciting and ignited kind of piece of work. So this is just one section where he's making a list. This is at the beginning of a chapter where he's about to introduce to you the concept of waste and what is waste, and this, in particular nuclear waste, and how nuclear waste is incredibly complex to handle, obviously for many reasons, right? So I'll just read a smattering of this, or maybe the whole thing. The lifespan of black ink and disposable plastic pens is estimated to be about four and a half years. 
the blue ink and plastic pen starts to fade away in two, and newsprint is only intended to last for a day. Already, scientists are experiencing difficulty in deciphering the technology that's used in UNIVAC, the earliest working computer from the late 1960s. And even then, the later encrypted plastic that we put on compact disks is likely to start peeling off in about 40 years. A color photograph, says Kodak, will last for 30 years, videotape for 14, magnetic tape, 7. The lifespan of skywriting is about 9 minutes. The lifespan of sunbeam is six. And the light that reflects off the moon every night is traveling so quickly that it only lasts a second. So he's making these kind of associative leaps that you might find in a poem. The Lisp poem, by the way, really popular sort of sub-genre poetry that poets exercise lists a lot. So this is just one sampling. He uses this technique over and over and over in the book on different subjects, including the suicide of that boy, including um, the numbers of suicide in the city of Las Vegas, which has one of the highest suicide rates in the country, uh, including facts about Yucca Mountain. So it's an impulse that comes back and forth through the book, and it becomes a refrain. It becomes familiar. So just maybe we can take a couple minutes. Like, What's your response to that little section. I'm an engineer. I know the technical details of Yucca Mountain, and it's amazing to see the, the quiet part of it and shocking me to the, <coughs> because I see both sides and uh-huh. I see the patterns. Any other? I was <clears throat> struck by the inaccuracies. Newsprint lasts a very long time. There are newspapers hundreds of years old. Pens last, my gosh, I've had pens I've had since I was a child, at least He doesn't even get the date of the Univac correct. Univac is older than the late 1860s. Can't you check his facts? There's a large debate about that, but yeah. Yes. And he and he achieves that? I think so for sure. And how does he achieve that? I thought that Jen. there was urgency in the shortening of time. You get this there's this like innate suspense that that time is is sort of shrinking in on you. Exactly. So that's like so that's narrative for me. I felt tension in that. There's the anaphora of the lifespan of, the lifespan of. We start with very concrete, unearthly objects, human-created objects, and move to very earthly objects, the sun and um, the light that reflects. Yeah. Well, I'm waiting for him to say the half-life of what the waste is. <coughs> yeah, John. I was struck by the fact that... Uh, Lyricism really had nothing to do with those blobs of decomposed age. There was what he was really writing about was not what he was writing about. You see, I mean, the the layers there. So if you're going to have a discussion about this, um, you really wouldn't talk about the facts. That's kind of immaterial in that sense. You would talk about the implication of those things. Um, 
So the beauty to me was, here are, the, here are those lines, which really are talking about this, mm -hmm. instead of actually you know, going to the chase and boring us with a typical you know, literal explanation of all this kind of stuff. We do the work That's right. what he's writing about because he hasn't written about it. I mean, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful play, I think, Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple more thoughts. Imagery is wonderful. I get tangled up in the facts, like your first speaker did. Yeah. And, and I unfortunately get, I lose at times the imagery as I start letting reality seep into my mind. So I either have to release reality and embrace the message, as John was talking about, or sometimes <clears> hard. So a little bit more fact checking might allow the more concrete leader, reader to uh, embrace the imagery. I'm interested in the error. Um, yes. Sort of like errancy that yes. this poet here was talking about the other day. Um, I think that the fact is less of a lyric impulse than just the notion of holding on, <coughs> desire to hold on to yes. what is permanence, and it just dissipation is at the root of it. And it's really unfair just to read this one sample, right? But the refrain does have an echo of errancy, definitely. It does have an echo of slipperiness in terms of can we rely on these facts. I think that's his point. That's one of his subversive points, but you know, welcome to lyricism. Yes, exactly. It's because we throw it away. We don't even read it sometimes. Urgently, we throw things away. Thank you. Yep. And he could have made a choice to sort of just speak that as a narrator, right? But he kind of came in the back door. And I like this. I like this too. I'm repeating what other people have said, but I can't hear their comments because of my yes. Um, I It's funny because <clears throat> it's very prose-like. Yes. It gives you a whole list of facts, mm -hmm. and yet, to me, there's a lyricism that comes through. Yes. Because he, he's contrasting all of these things. Yes. Right. That are created. That's right. Uh, that are garbage. And, and, as, and he says how long they last. So he keeps talking about the transience of time. So, so these things, like the, the, the value or the usefulness or whatever of these things keep shrinking. And as, as, he, as he keeps adding onto the list the, the different limits of time, I see this pile of junk, you know, yeah. becoming huger in my mind. So there's something lyrical there. Yes, exactly. That last comment. <laughs> Yes, that's how it is. Yeah, how it visually, <laughs> the, the sentences shorten and shorten, and then you have that beautiful last sentence that elongates, mm. and I think that's what brings it, it back to itself. Yes. Like and, a shell. And lyrical writers, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but yes, obviously employing like myriads of sentences. I know that sounds simple, but for many of us, we're not paying attention to that. Um, poets spend a lot of time thinking about that. We have a much smaller unit to sort of observe and um, witness, but in any sense, if there's something I think to be learned about the power of the sentence, how the diminishing sentence can 
invoke emotions, changes in small changes in syntax, the use of anaphora, so his repeat repetition of that phrase, the lifespan of blue ink or black ink, the lifespan of skywriting, the lifespan of a sunbeam. And there's surprises in here. When the skywriting comes in, it's a bit of a laugh. When the sunbeam comes in, it's you know something else. It's things are always shifting. It's my feeling about it. So so far, if we think about lyric as being the psalm, we have an out-of-time mind, or one that doesn't think about linearity so much, or an intellectual engagement. We have the refrain, the chorus, something to come back to, something to keep coming back to and repeating, a gesture, a notion, a note, um, a modality even. Okay, And the last sort of thing I want to talk about is this um, impulse around, I call it myth-making. Um, so now I'm going to shift to my own uh, work in progress, which is extremely shy-making, and it's um, unnerving, but I chose to kind of talk about it because I'm here and I can answer questions about it. It might be more useful. Um, but I noticed in my own work that... Um, that I had a lot of these different impulses at play kind of in my uh, draft process. So uh, from the get-go, I was a big researcher, so I, did, I was doing a whole bunch of research um, on, for this project that I'll, I will explain to you in a second. I'm a huge list maker, just kind of as a creative process. I have notebooks full of weird lists, uh, so that seemed really familiar. Um, refrain for me usually plays out in the recursion of an image so that was kind of playing out in early drafts and I started to think that maybe I didn't have such a deficit that maybe just because I can't tell a story that I could maybe start to braid some of these raw materials the lump of clay uh, to use Sarah's analogy um, and start to sculpt it into something um, so I was very interested in this notion of and mine's a family story, so I'm writing a memoir um, that's really about generations of suicide in my family. My father died of suicide in 2008, and both of my grandfathers died by suicide, which was something that my parents never discussed, and those people sort of ceased to exist in the family literally because no one talked about them. When my father died... Um, this very unexpected thing happened for me, which is I felt an urgency to kind of go and collect the stories, speaking of story, um, <laughs> about these grandfathers. And that was sort of my first impulse. So it involved a whole bunch of research, genealogical research and research uh, around a place. My parents come from southeastern Kansas. Uh, most of the family has stayed there. My parents left and went to Minnesota. It was not a place I spent a lot of time in as a child, so it was pretty unfamiliar to me. And in, just like Joni's story, in the course of my research, I discovered a whole bunch of things about the place, including some environmental degradation that's um, pretty horrific. Uh, and in the process, wit witnessed like um, an enormous sinkhole opening up across the street right from my grandmother's house. Um, which then became lodged in my mind, much like the Break the Levy song, as kind of a metaphor that I couldn't let go of. Um, that's some of the background here. But as I got better at writing sentences, 
and actually creating prose, um, I knew what I could do well as a poet was get you to pay attention to something. You know, I could, I could make an image. I am a pretty good descriptor. That was my strength. So I wanted to, like, that's my secret weapon. I want to wield it as much as possible. And I started to think about this as um, uh, making a myth. So not, and I want to emphatically say this, not falsifying information, but um, exaggerating the lens of perception almost, slowing way down beyond what probably is humanly possible. So there's a little bit of creativeness um, happening here. But it's also very tied to memory. And especially early on, because I was so involved in this place, I needed the reader to feel involved in this place. And again, I felt like the only way to do that was to give you the sensory experience of this place. So I just gave you probably too much. <laughs> I gave you a, a short excerpt from the, from the memoir, and I think I'm not going to read all of it, um, but it, it, if you read it later, you'll see that uh, <laughs> there's hours and hours and hours and hours of research behind all that you're reading here. Very little of that enters, but it was so instructive for me when I actually started to write this scene. Um, I'm going to read the last... Uh, paragraph. And what's happening here is that I, uh, my father has been buried, and I keep, I keep going back to this place, Pittsburgh, Kansas, and it's rather obsessive. Uh, and, and, and I don't really, at times I don't really know what I'm doing there. I'm just sort of wandering around lost. I'm obviously in grief, and many other things are going on. So this is one of those moments, um, and I'm just going to read the last well, I'll read a little bit prelude so this makes sense to you, okay? Um, it's as if I'm trying to remember myself, I told one friend, in the strictest sense, as if I'm making a new place for myself. Afterward, I would say that Pittsburgh was a kind of blank slate, a place where I could be unbounded, but also oddly rooted. Pittsburgh was also a diversion, obliterate of any real time, <clears throat> a depository for my grief. I was unconsciously making of it a shrine, talking to death through material means. This became abundantly clear when I found myself driving to the small town of Weir, looking for the spot where my paternal grandfather's body had been found. I knew only the approximate lo location from newspaper accounts, but believed if I somehow found the right country road, I'd know by instinct the exact place. I drove into Weir and then drove west to what is now Liberty Road, a narrow dirt road that cuts through corn and alfalfa fields. I can see now that the sense of urgency I had even just a few months earlier was beginning to recede or degrade like a thin veneer, leaving me filled with an odd sense of helplessness. I drove back and forth on the road slowly, a world opening up in the small units of distance I traveled the light over the field, the heat in the air, the silence in the trees. A sudden feeling of sorrow gripped me. It pulled off the side of the road and stopped the car. I got out, stood in the road, momentarily shrouded in a cloud of dust. 
a few years later, after I found a copy of a coroner's report which cited precise details of the location of my grandfather's body, I would discover I was fewer than 500 yards away from the actual deathscape. For now, all I noticed was that I was standing in front of a native tall grass prairie, not yet mown or plowed. I walked straight into the field without thought. I walked a few hundred yards and sat down beneath the blue stem grasses and side oats. I was surprised to find an abundance of growth, goldenrod, aster, blazing star, all blooming under the cool shade of the tall grasses in spite of the year's long, dry summer. Suddenly, the July afternoon breathed its atmosphere into me, immensely rich and replete because it felt as if all life was gathered there. It seemed to slice through the sorrow, the land spread out in my mind as a memory. I felt as though something around me was changing or was changing inside of me so that now I could see something I hadn't seen before. It was setting something in motion. And from that moment forward, I couldn't think to be in any other place than the earth under my feet. The horizons and layers, topsoil and massive bedrock, particles, minerals, pores, gas, the red oxides of iron and clay, the biomantle of dead plants and animal tissue with all its living organisms, mites, snails, beetles, springtails, worms, grubs. Suddenly, the ground was close to me again, the ground. So here, I'm really hoping that the writer, me, can remind the reader of the delight and the surprise to be had from even just the natural objects of a landscape. Um, and the move toward the mythic, as I call it, really happens when the na- narrator investigate, invests in a, like a quotidian act, uh, the actual writing, um, to help you remember. So obviously, this is a memoir. The act of remembering is itself a repeated chord throughout my so-called draft. Um, but drawing attention to both the relics, which the first part of this excerpt does, and then the burgeoning new life in the place was a way for the reader to hopefully come in and understand some of the hidden work in the environment and act as a kind of metaphor for the speaker's uh, state of being, complicated state of being. So when I say myth-making, it's it's sort of using those gestures of myth, thinking about how your environment or the tools and things around you can kind of be archetypal for your own personal experience. It's just like another lens to give you kind of a greater view. So we have about 10 minutes, if anyone has further questions. Mr. Heinen.
which is the voice, the, the speaker behind it, she's on a quest. It's a quest story mm -hmm. of understanding. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the characters becomes the setting. And because we want to know setting, because it, it's so urgent in a sense, we get the backstory of setting. So I just see many of the distinctions between yeah. narrative and, and, and lyrical falling away with what I would call the, I hate the term sincerity in the voice. It's more like a genuine voice. I believe this person yes. in her quest. Right. And she needs to know, and I find myself wanting to know with her. I think it's wonderful. And the distinctions of maybe real, but Thank not terribly not yeah, I mean, you can't escape the speaker no matter what you're doing, right? Even when you're writing a poem, you have a speaker. We've been talking a lot about that this week. Um, and certainly, uh, I think you're right, but I didn't see that. I, I know it seems obvious, but it didn't seem like it was about a quest to me until very recently. So I, it sort of dovetails on what Sarah's saying. I think you have to do a whole lot of writing before you can discover if you're a lyric impulse writer, before you can discover the so-called story. I mean, some of us work up from an opposite direction. We have a story, sort of a sketch of one at least, in mind, and then we can proceed in that direction and sort of fill in the pieces. Does that make sense, Sarah? Help me out. So, I feel like there's a needle in front of my balloon. No, I, I, I just thought of this in a second when you said that about uh, you know where, where you start from and maybe you start from the lyric and you figure out what the story is. And um, and I'm coming obviously from a much more narrative background. Yes. I want to distinguish, but I think a challenge of starting with a story too firmly in mind yes. is that then your activity of writing the narrative often becomes simply a connecting of the dots, point A, point B, point C. I found that when I tried to write a novel. And it was very lean and mean because I, boy, had I charted out what that story was going to be. I knew how it was going to end. And it was too short. I didn't give my characters enough breathing room to react to what I was putting through. Uh, I wanted to move on to the next plot point. And since I come from a place of nonfiction where I have the lump of clay, I was a little mystified by having to sort of create the clay or, you know, like, I, I, even having written 200 pages, I was still sort of baffled by the genre because I knew it wasn't good because it was too spare. Yeah. But I couldn't think of how to fill it in. Yeah. And so, in a way, you're kind of wandering around and starting with the lyric. It could be a more organic way to progress. Yes. I think so. I mean, I, I love Joni's story because I think what you said is so beautiful, but I really think you, it's a delicate balance. You can box yourself in so much that you lose, you don't get the accidents. You just don't get the happy chance of like, being a human in the world, and God forbid the, the song comes on the radio and triggers you into some other digression. I mean, I think that's part of our job as writers is to obviously reflect, especially if you're working on a memoir or a personal essay kind of piece, but you also have to be a part of the world and pay attention to what's going on around you. Oh. 
thinking about what you're saying so far about the other two writers as well as applying it to yourself. So the notion of authenticity and voice occurred to me. Um, is authenticity, I was trying to finish a sentence and I couldn't do it, maybe you can do it. Authenticity in voice is less about facts and research and crap than it is about Authenticity in voice is about, what, say it again? The if. If. If authenticity in voice is less, is about, less about facts and research and crap and more, and more about whatever. It's like, you know, the other fellow that you read, there was this whole list of stuff about what was going on, what was not said. Is, is that the authenticity of the voice? Jim, do you want to bail me out? I know. I don't either. At, at all, but there is something genuine in the need to tell this story that I think comes out in excerpt from your work. There's something genuine in the need. I think that I want to respond by saying something about the fact that we all have expectations as readers. And those are individuals, so those run in the realm of aesthetics. But then we also have social and cultural expectations. And when it comes to authenticity of voice, I think we're on a slippery slope. In other words, I think that's very connected to what your expectations of, of a speaker and what you uh, want from any given piece of literature. And Sarah and I were talking about this at dinner a little bit the other night, that you know, right now there is a slight trend for some memoirs that are, um, so I use the equation of like, most memoirs have a continuum of like revelation and concealment, right? You're kind of always trying to navigate um, what you want to reveal and what do you want to conceal. And there's a few very recent books there, my Uso's among them, maybe not revealing too much, not at, from an emotional level, but very much from a philosophical kind of intellectual level. Now for some readers, that's gonna feel cold. <coughs> For other readers, always my hand, very exciting. You know, it's not the only thing I love to read. Um, so it, I think, and this also changes, obviously, right? As you change in your creative practice, your needs and desires as a writer and a reader change. So uh, that's how I would answer that question. So what I think is interesting that I'm thinking about, and forgive me if this sounds clumsy, but it's that you're telling a story on a level, the quest that we, it has already been um, articulated, but you also have this cadence that I think is the poet meets the storyteller yeah. and becomes in the choice of detail, the bedrock, the particles, the minerals. So as a poet, you know, my attention zooms in on pores, gas, red oxides, and I think, there's stories within stories. So there's emerging of the I, the spoken I, that's here that I could tire of as a reader. And I'm sure as a thinker I tire of my own I, but then I think <coughs> what worlds and stories exist beyond my body, his body. So there's so much happening in the layering here that I think is a really interesting technique to be a poet coming into memoir. So that I, I enjoy that, I enjoy that. So it's emerging of the two. Again, it's like capitalizing on what are your organic strengths, right? Because that's don't that's what you have. <laughs> but then 
the maybe trying to push towards where, you know, given weaknesses are, but shaping the clay through your strength, which is what I am attempting to do.